the last word on Today FM with Matt Cooper. And I'm delighted to say for the Culture Club today, we have the man who, for the last two weeks, has topped the bestseller list for non-fiction books in Ireland. And he's our very own co-presenter of the Dermot and Dave show here at Today FM. Dermot Whelan, you're very welcome to the Culture Club. Matt Cooper, thank you so much, but I feel I must correct you. I'm number one across all genres, not just nonfiction. I, I really feel like I need to get that out there, especially you, you, you being an you're author. Dead right to do so. <laughs> My apologies for not giving you full credit for your incredible achievement. But tell us, it thank must you. be brilliant, though, it, it, when you have this new book, Mindful, to top the bestseller charts. But given that you write about it in, in the book about anxiety, and you've spoken to us on the last word before about anxiety, was there any anxiousness about actually putting this book into the public domain and how people would react to it? A little bit, I suppose, close to publication date. I, I sort of realized how personal uh, some of it is because it does contain, you know, my own story in there as well as the the tips and techniques that I've, I've have helped me over the years. Um, but it, overall, not really, to be honest, I, I it was something I was very positive I wanted to write. Um, it's I wrote it for the same reasons that I became a meditation teacher. You know, they're simple techniques. And when we get past all the fluff, the woo woo and the the clutter that comes with wellness in general, when we actually drill down into the techniques, they're very effective. They're very useful. And I'm excited about people learning them and, and those techniques helping them. One of the techniques a lot of people use is journaling. So was this almost sort of an extension of that or had you been doing that writing for yourself to be able to deal with events and issues? Um, I, I wasn't a everyday journaler. I know that a lot of people are. It's extremely effective uh, for your mental well-being and there's a lot of science to back it up now. It isn't just a, sort of a fluffy thing. But I suppose the book had been knocking around in my head out of my own frustration, because I, I read a lot of wellness books, um, books on meditation, and I just found that either they were too spiritual, uh, too religious, or they were too scientific, and, and you felt like that you were actually getting your own PhD while you were reading them. So for me, it was more out of, you know, the, the, the books I'd read just through my own interest and through studying to be a teacher, I just felt there was nothing really in the market to say, to deliver this in a way that is accessible and actually with a bit of crack, you know, there's well, no reason why. I was just going to say why... that because are many of those books almost humorless, that they're almost so worthy that they become to a touch self-defeating? I think so, you know, and I think there's a particular style that a lot of them have just sort of fallen into. And it's a very sort of American um, it, almost Californian approach to to well-being, which, you know, is accessible to some and some people are into that. But for most of us, and particularly Irish people and particular men are not into that. You know, it's very targeted towards a certain demographic of women generally. Um, and if they're if you're not into your crystals and your chakras, then you, it, you know, it might go over your head. So I just wanted to give something to people that whether you're 10 years old or whether you're 110 years old, it's open to everybody. And I've always felt that why should it be, you know, only the knowledge that belongs to either someone in a Californian yoga studio, a cave in somewhere in India, or, you know, a monk in the Himalayas, or even elite athletes. Why should they have all the knowledge and us regular Joe and Mary's not have access to it? Okay. Well, you know, we asked you for all your favorites in the Culture Club. 
because of that, I want you to nominate your favorite book or author to start us today, please. Well, Matt, my favorite book or author is uh, a book called Breath by James Nestor. Um, it's a fairly recent book, but I, I suppose I like it for the same reasons I wanted to write my own book and that it's, it's written by a journalist, uh, an American journalist called James Nestor. And he was just fascinated with the history and the power of the breath and how it can be a tool for um, incredible improvements in our own wellness and even down to the the way we breathe, whether that's nasal breathing, nose, you know, uh, whether we breathe through our mouth. So it sounds like a weird topic to to make a book out of, but he's just a very curious journalist. And I think he he. He really touches on a lot of the nice science around around just the nature of breathing. Let's hear an extract from James Nestor's book, Breath. So I closed my eyes again, wrapped the blanket a little tighter, and kept breathing. Something happened. I wasn't conscious of any transformation taking place. I never felt myself relax or the swarm of nagging thoughts leave my head. But it was as if I had been taken and deposited somewhere else. Time passed in an instant. The tape came to an end and I reopened my eyes. There was something wet on my head. I lifted my hand to wipe it off and noticed my hair was sopping. Then I felt the sting of sweat in my eyes and tasted salt. I looked down at my torso and noticed blotches on my sweater and jeans. The temperature in the room was about 68 degrees, much cooler beneath that drafty window. Everyone had been covered in jackets and hoodies to keep warm but I had somehow sweated through my clothes as if I'd just run a marathon. The instructor approached and asked if I was okay, if I'd been sick or had a fever. I told her I felt perfectly fine. Then she said something about the body's heat, how inhaled breath provides us with new energy and exhaled breath releases old. The next day, I felt even better. As advertised, there was a feeling of calm and quiet I hadn't experienced in a long time. I slept well. Okay, that's James Nestor. That's your choice as favourite book or author. Okay, let's get to some of the other things that we do in Culture Club, Dermot. We ask every guest to nominate a first single they can remember buying. You don't just have a single, you have a first album you remember as well. So tell us about the two of them. Yeah, well, my first single is one of those singles that you are reluctant to mention in public because it's probably the least cool single of all time. And in fact, I don't even know if everybody would remember it. For some reason, I bought ABC's When Smokey Sings um, when I was about 10, I think. Um, I wasn't a massive fan of the band. I didn't really know much about them. I just liked the song, as you do at that age. I suppose kids have Spotify playlists now that they just sort of add songs to. But I remember going into Golden Discs downstairs in Todd's, now Brown Thomas in Limerick, and picked myself up uh, a copy of When Smokey Sings. And I actually played it for the first time on a piece of equipment. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, Matt. A radiogram. A radiogram. <laughs> A radiogram, like there was an obsession in sort of the 70s of making sound equipment look like pieces of furniture. So it was basically Ah. like it looked like a long sideboard. But actually, when you lifted the lid, there was a record player in there and and room for LPs. And then there were speakers on both ends. And then it was all on legs. Like a drinks cabinet. Exactly. It was was unnecessarily classy um, for, (laughs) you know. But I, of course, I remember putting my single on and, and listening to ABC when Smokey sings Let's and thinking I was just the coolest kid in Limerick.
ABC when Smokey sings. I don't know why you're embarrassed by that, Dermot. <laughs> I don't know. You didn't see many denim jackets in the 80s with ABC written on the back. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I remember, I think his name was it Martin Fry, the lead singer of ABC. He was kind of like a, a poor man's Brian Ferry. Um, <laughs> it's not a title anybody wants, really. But I don't know. It was a nice, happy tune. I guess that's why I liked it. What was the first album you remember buying? It was Men at Work's Business as Usual. My brother took me into what was at the time the Virgin Megastore on the Keys and in Dublin. And I was very excited to be in there. And I remember seeing the big wall of records. And I, I couldn't believe that there were a few floors of records that you could choose from and escalators. It was all very exciting for a little Limerick boy. Um, but yeah, I remember bringing this album home. And it's one of those albums that always stuck with me. You know, I, I don't find myself listening to much ABC these days, but I definitely will throw on this as as a, it's a bit of a classic album I think and still there's some great tunes on it it's men at work business as usual and the track we have is down under Better work, you still listen to Dermot Whelan? Yeah, I would still throw that on in the car from time to time. And um, I just think, particularly that song, again, it, it, it says, you know, it's last of the generations. You still hear it played on, on radio. And I, I, again, I suppose it was in the news in more recent years because it was involved in quite a complicated lawsuit where the little flute piece in that song, the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do, um, they were actually taken to court over that because it sounded so similar to an old Australian classic called the Cookaburra Sits in the Old Gum Tree or something like that. Um, and actually they won. So I know a lot of the, the band took it quite badly. In fact, one of the members took it took it very badly and became very depressed and unfortunately died at quite a young age as a result of it. So it's I think it's one of those iconic songs that has lived on in people's minds, um, uh, particularly considering it was such a huge song in Australia and the lead singer Colin Hay was Scottish and, and ended up turning up in kind of strange places. Uh, if you remember that TV show Scrubs, um, he ended up in one episode in a cupboard playing the guitar, um, kind of like Bertie Ahern in that ad years ago. <laughs> <laughs> right. Your favorite album, favorite artist. OK, uh, tell us you, you have two choices here because you couldn't really choose between 
uh, two particular albums from your two favourite artists. Uh, tell us about your love for The Police first, because you've selected Orlandis to Moore as your favourite album, which you must have only been a Bob Oak when that was brought out. Yeah, I was a bit late to The Police Party. I suppose I, I was probably about maybe... 14 or or 15 maybe when I started getting into the police and like most people it was an older brother who kind of got me into them and it, it was my older brother Connor always had police albums and I I was just so drawn to Stuart Copeland the drummer I'd never heard drums like that and that kind of strange mix of of reggae and rock and pop all kind of fused together um and he I, I just loved the idea that almost each song was built around his drums and then you have, of course you had Sting's incredible voice as well um, but it it was the police that actually got me into the drums because I loved Stuart Copeland so much um, and then I've, I, I played in bands for years I was never anywhere near as good as Stuart Copeland anyone who's heard me I'm, I'm like an average pub drummer uh, but I just thought the police were fantastic and I, I, I got to see them in their reunion back in 2008 I think it was when they played in Dublin and that was just like a dream come true I, I never thought they'd get back together well, the track we have from Atlantis de Boer, the first album is Roxanne. Really bring me back to my secondary school days as well. Though not the police were really <laughs> a great band, lots of great singles, but not enormous depth in the albums. No, and there was always a few really dodgy tracks on the albums. I think that's something in 80s music in particular, you wouldn't get away with what people were allowed to put on albums back then. You know, these days, um, you're expected that, you know, every song pretty much has to be a hit. But they did have a few weird sort of experimental um, songs on it. Andy Summers, the guitarist, used to have a song called Behind My Camel, which was kind of weird. And Sting used to occasionally let the others write songs and, and maybe sometimes they might be a bit strange. But I, I, I think that was funny. You know, when you when I went to see the police live in Croke Park, you could see the crowd getting really bored when they weren't playing the hits that everybody knew. But I suppose for a police fan, it was really special to hear, you know, album tracks that you never thought you'd hear live being played uh, in Dublin. You're also a big U2 fan and you have Actung Baby as your favourite album. Why so? Uh, I think, you know, you just mentioned secondary school there. The sort of transition from secondary school in Limerick to, to going to college in Dublin to Trinity it's one of those albums that sort of spanned that that time in my life. And I think any album that you have around then stays with you and you, it kind of gets 
soaked in all the the memories and experiences and excitement of of those kinds of times that age a sort of transition from 18 to 22 so it'll always be fused with just great memories of great friends and new cities and you know new exciting things plus it's full of absolute bangers you know when you think of the Joshua Tree you know 4 years before it it was such a different album uh, and then they came back with Octung Baby and I just I remember the just experiencing the different sound, like the sound of Larry Mullen's snare, the way they had produced it just sounded really industrial. And um, I actually met Flood, one of the, the studio engineer who who worked on Octung Baby and has since become um, a pretty good friend. And we've had just amazing conversations about how when he's when he's mixing sound, he actually sees sound waves in the air. Um, so he's one of these kind of crazy geniuses, but I, I just thought the sound that he brought to a lot of the tracks on Octung Baby was really unique and something we hadn't heard from you two before. I need to take a break, but before we get to it, one last bit of music. Best gig you were ever at? And I think you have a few here to nominate. Yeah, well, I've mentioned the police reunion gig in, in 2008 in Croke Park. Um, I got to see you two in Tulsa in 2018 at the start of their Innocence and Experience tour, which was just incredible and actually got to meet Bono um, at a sound check. He played four or five songs just for a, a small bunch of uh, journalists, I'm going to just say. Just for you, Dermot, just for you. Just for me. <laughs> yeah, and then... Um, one of my absolute favorite bands as well is a band called Tool. They're from Los Angeles. They would be considered prog metal. Um, and I got to see them in Prague in 2019. They hadn't toured in years, um, but and they don't tend to release much music. They've only had five albums over the last three decades. So um, I got to see them at the O2 Arena in Prague. As Each year, when under normal circumstances, I tend to try and visit a city I've never been to on my own and go to a gig while I'm there. So... That was kind of my gift to myself. So um, Tool just have these epic light shows um, that, you know, it's a very atmospheric sound to what they do. Um, there's a lot of depth in the lyrics and uh, to see it in an arena, an enclosed arena like that was just absolutely fantastic. Well, it's not from Prague, but we have a bit of Tool performing live in 2019. Dermot Wheeler, and I always had your radio partner Dave Moore down as the metal head, and it turns out you're the one. Oh, he's definitely he, he's the proper metal head, and he would be scoffing now, you know, if he's listening to this because he is the metal purist. I like a very particular small niche of prog <laughs> metal, and there's only about three bands in there for me. So um, I'm just excited that Matt Cooper is playing Tool, as I'm sure the other four Tool fans in Ireland are. <laughs> Favorite movie? What are you going to nominate for us, please, Dermot? A film that's been around a while, but I always end up coming back to it because I just love it so much. Uh, it's called With Nail and I. And uh, we've, it's, it's been nominated uh, by many guests on the Culture Club over the last few years. 
Uh, I'm sure it has, because it's just one of those little gems where, you know, you've learned off the entire script. I remember I, I used to watch this when I was going to college uh, and it, me and myself, and my flatmate used to just have it on the VHS, just playing all the time while we were there. So we'd come in, turn on the lights, put on with Nail and I and then go about our business. So we learned off the script fairly quickly. And um, I suppose for anyone who doesn't know it, it's a movie that's set in 1960s England, London. It stars Richard E. Grant as as uh, as a, a an out of work actor with a lot of issues, including alcoholism, and his pal Paul McGann, played by Paul McGann, who's I, and um, he is similarly out of work but has a little bit more of a positive outlook on life. So it's really just, you know, their ramblings and musings and a, a little bit of an adventure in sixties England. But it's what makes it so beautiful is Bruce Robinson's writing. It's just. Uh, every line is is a gem. There's no waste. You know, if I was ever to try and write a film script or if I was going to advise anyone who wanted to, I, I would tell them to to read that script because there's there's nothing in it that shouldn't be there. And it's there's just really funny. In which Paul McGann and Richard E. Grant, um, and Whitnell, of course, played by Richard E. Grant, drink lighter fuel. The thermostats, what have you done to them? I haven't touched them. Then why has my head gone numb? I must have some booze. I demand to have some booze. I wouldn't drink that because Why not? Because Why not? I don't advise it. Even the wankers on the site wouldn't drink that. That's worse than meth. Nonsense. This is a far superior drink to meths. The wankers don't drink it because they can't afford it. Have we got any more? Liar. What's in your toolbox? Um, we have nothing. Sit down. Liar. You've got antifreeze. You bloody fool. You should never mix your drinks. <laughs> Great oh, stuff with Nell and I. Okay, uh, play musical. What are you going to give us one of those? I saw an amazing play with Killian Murphy, actually, uh, a couple of years ago, and it was in Dublin for a very, very short period of time. In fact, I think he might have only have done two or three performances, and it was uh, called Grief is a Thing with Feathers. Um, and I've seen Killian do a few one-man shows over the years. He tends to, to take one on. Um, I know he's worked with Enda Walsh quite a lot in, in his with his, play, his playwriting. But... I'm always amazed by anyone who can do a one man show. And even as a stand up comic myself, I know what it's like to be on stage by myself. But the intensity and to the sheer length of time and and the lines you have to remember <laughs> um, and the fact that when you see someone with Killian's caliber acting in a, in a one man show that that is has incredible depth and and the level of performance they put into it, you realize just what separates those guys from, you know, the, the mere mortal actors that, that, you know, maybe would aspire to be like him someday. And I think the fact that you can hold a performance, hold a theater, hold the audience for up to two hours and create a, a whole entire world with little or nothing else on the stage, it's just an incredible feat, you know, other, when you see all other forms of entertainment, whether it's live music on stage or even just, you know, a regular show or play, when you see a one man show done 
properly and with that amount of intensity and professionalism, you realize it, it, it's going to stay with you afterwards. OK, let's move to television. Uh, quickly go through the TV shows that formed you as a young child and a young man. Wow. Well, I was an 80s kid, so I just loved all those hour long shows. Um, I loved Buck Rogers. Um, I remember sitting at my kitchen table as a kid having <laughs> having an imaginary conversation. I was probably about eight and I was having an imaginary conversation with Buck Rogers. He was a, a sci-fi, you know, character. Um, he saved the day everywhere, you know, flew a cool spaceship and all that. And I remember sitting at the kitchen table in Limerick having an imaginary conversation with him while doing my homework. And it was I like, do. what, Buck? Yeah, like, Buck, you, you, need me, you, you need me to join you and save the galaxy? At which point my brother came around the corner, had been listening to me having this imaginary conversation, Ooh. laughed his ass off at me. Um, and then proceeded to take a packet of polaments out of my mother's handbag. I'm not sure why I remember it in such great detail, but Buck Rogers <laughs> played a big role in my early years. I loved Battlestar Galactica. Um, I loved the A-Team. And basically any of those sort of Saturday night, eight o'clock TV shows, um, I was a big fan of those, particularly if they were science fiction. Now, I see for up-to-date ones, you have the wonderful Better Call Saul, which may be one of the best things ever made. I'm also interested to see that you have Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is on Amazon Prime at present. Uh, there's bits of that I love, particularly the character who does, who plays Lenny Bruce uh, for the stand-up. Some of the stand-up stuff in that is absolutely terrific, and the scripting as well, and the performance by Rachel Brosnahan. Yeah, it's one of those shows that maybe went under the radar for a lot of people because firstly, stuff on Netflix tends to get a bit more airtime. Um, but and there's a lot of shows on Prime that maybe people don't know about. But uh, the, I didn't know what it I was walking into when I just turned it on one day and I was just blown away by the writing in it. Again, it's it's it almost at times seems like you're watching a play on television, the style of the writing. And I know that sounds kind of icky possibly to a lot of people, but there's a rhythm to the writing that once you get into it, it's it, it's just so entertaining. And it's not easy to write a story about stand up comedy. TV shows have tried to do it in the past and it has failed because the writing has to match. You know, it has to be as good as something that you might see, uh, you know, on a stand up comedy stage. And that's not easy to do. So it's set in New York. It's the 1960s. It's a Jewish family. And and this uh, d d um, separated mother decides that she wants to go on her own as a stand-up comic and obviously in 1960s this wasn't the norm um so it's kind of her adventures but the characters are just fantastic and it's one of those shows that's given me real belly laugh laugh out loud moments um and it just looks fantastic it's amazon so it's got a massive budget so everything looks great the colors pop in it and i think if anyone's looking for a show that it's a little bit different to maybe the stuff that's been churned out where the, there's a little bit more emphasis on the writing. Um, then I think Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Prime is something that won't disappoint you. And one final TV one. And I've been considering whether I should have a look at this or not when hearing good reviews. Are you going to convince us that we should watch Drive to Survive on Netflix? Yes, I am. And this show, like I had no interest in Formula One. I had a passing interest in the early noughties when it was kind of Celtic Tigery and, you know, restaurants were serving brunch with the Formula One on a big screen and everyone thought it was kind of cool. But I had no interest. I started to watch F1 Drive to Survive. And all it is is a behind the scenes look at the world of Formula One. So you get access to the drivers, the pit crews, you know, the construction teams, um, you know, the car manufacturers, that whole little 
world that that works together to create these races that normally we would ignore. But there's 10 episodes a season. There's three seasons. And each episode is like a movie in itself because most of them culminate in a big race. And it's just so brilliantly told in terms of taking you along, introducing the drivers and the, and the people who work in it as as characters. And you either root for them or you hate them. Um, and the, the sort of um, backbiting and, and really, really fierce competition in the world of Formula One, it basically kind of lets, lets you see behind the curtain and suddenly the whole thing makes sense. So then when you go to actually watch a Grand Prix, you go, OK, I get it now. And it makes you wish that they did this for loads of stuff. They should do it for golf and tennis. And I know they do a little bit for, for football with some recent Premier League documentaries, but um, it's just such a great little peek behind the curtain. And it really makes you appreciate um, just what's happening on, on those in those Formula One events and how exciting it actually is. Let's hear a clip from Drive to Survive. I am Daniel Ricciardo. I was born in Perth, Australia, and I'm a Formula One driver. Sounds pretty good when I say that. I love that feeling of the car on the edge at such a high speed. I love the danger, that adrenaline and that excitement. More than anything, I love the feeling of winning. It's a beautiful thing. And Ricardo has got the inside line. Lewis Hamilton's brave defence of second place comes to an end. And down the inside goes Daniel Ricardo. That's how it starts, ladies. And Daniel Ricardo wins the Hungarian Grand Prix. I don't think anyone's smile could be bigger. Okay, well, that's where we have to leave it. A man who normally smiles very bigly as well is Dermot Whelan, who is smiling a lot because his new book, Mindful, is the best-selling book in Ireland at present. And it's been great to have you here on the Culture Club with us on The Last Word. And we look forward to hearing you every morning between 9 o'clock and 12 o'clock with Dave on the Dermot and Dave show. Thank you very much, Dermot, for being with us this evening. Matt, thanks a million. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Listen live on air from 4.30 weekdays on Today FM.